So hi, welcome everybody to our Liverpool University CIE uh, Centre for Innovation podcast. It's episode six and it's four guests from um, all the way from Cork to Aarhus in Denmark. Um, and then we had a nice discussion where we actually based today might be quite different uh, with, from our institution. And it's another special edition with educational developers. And the idea of Treasure Island is, so obviously since the pandemic, we have thought a lot about uh, what pedagogies, how might be best spending our precious contact time with students. And so the idea of Treasure Island is really capturing that moment with the students. So let's take it in turns. And first, I will ask you to introduce yourself the your current role, uh, perhaps a little bit your original disciplinary background and, and trajectory. Um, and then we will go on to our treasure islands. So Nicola, can I start with you, please? Yeah, hello. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'm Nick Whitten. I am director of the Durham Centre for Academic Development at Durham University. Um, I started doing this map of academic trajectory because it's kind of gone all over the place. So um, my academics is really my second career. I started out working in not-for-profit campaigning for several years and then got much more excited by the computers and ended up doing a master's in IT, and a PhD in IT, getting excited by learning technology, then moving to academic development, then moving to research and then discovering that actually moving to leadership was much, much easier for making a real difference and spending most of my life applying for grants that I didn't get and doing projects. So that's how I got here. Great, thank you, Nicola, and lovely because I I think every time you ask someone in in this role to describe that trajectory is so varied and different. Thank you, and making a difference does strike a chord. Thank you, Rika. Yeah, hi. Uh, my name is Rika Tofnergaard, so I'm the Dane. Um, I know Nick quite well, but I'll try to be another Rika today. I'm also a lot of different persons. Um, I'm based at the School of Education uh, you know, at Aarhus University at the Department of Educational Theory and Curriculum Studies. Um, I have a very old-fashioned degree called, and I'm, I'm not sure this is the English right English translation, but Magistratium, uh, a Magister degree, uh, which is a kind of a research master's degree, which is not in, uh, not available to anyone. I, I think I got the last one from Denmark in Nordic <laughs> language and literature. So within kind of poetry and philosophy uh, in the Nordic countries. And then I did a PhD in information and media studies on gameplay experiences and game design, uh, really looking at how players are playing the game. And at the same time, the game or the design is playing the player and how these two interact to create a certain kind of experience or interaction. And I think that was what I took with me when I quite surprisingly got a position within education, which I didn't know anything about at all. Um, and that's probably how I'm still working, like thinking about education as an experience design and as an interaction design, trying to focus on the hands, heads and hearts of students to create a certain kind of habits or Bildung, Dense in Danish, um, pedagogical formation perhaps in, in English and um, yeah, and then I'm, I'm in the steering group of the Center for Higher Education Futures, and I'm in the board of the philosophy and theory of uh, higher education society. Brilliant. Oh, thank you so much. That's fascinating. Okay, Simon, can we go on to you, please? Yeah, of course. So um, Tundis persuaded me to join the podcast. Um, 
I am the director of the Centre for Innovation and Education within which this podcast is being developed. Um, how did I arrive here? Well, I, I started actually in, in further education, which I, f- I found to be a really fascinating grounding for kind of teaching in the way that you really have to work really hard to engage learners because there's a lot of disaffected learners in further education in the UK, mainly because schools send them to FE when they think they're not good enough for other things. Uh, you know, that was a kind of really sad reality. So I, f- I found that really grounding, that experience. And then um, I got a post in higher education at what was then Leeds Metropolitan University. And my subject area is broadcast engineering. So really about like video signals and or engineering around broadcast. Um, and it was during my teaching there, about 2006, that I realised, well, you know, if you've ever taught in higher education in the UK, the, f- or the first, it might be the same anywhere across the world, the first three weeks of lectures, you get four lecture theatres and then it kind of tails off until you get to week 12 and there's about 10 people out of the 100 that should be in the room. And, and I, have my, I suppose, and I'll talk about this in light bulb a bit, but... It was kind of, why am I wasting this? The students clearly don't need this lecture and it's a lot of work for me. So I started using podcasts in about 2006 in, in replacement of lectures. Um, and that, that led to me being really interested in educational technology. And then I became involved in the, the Centre for Learning and Teaching at the university using my educational technology experience. Then I became head of e-learning head of digital pedagogy and then eventually found myself at the University of Liverpool as the director of the Centre for Innovation Education. So it's a very practice-based journey that I've had. You know, it's about implementation all the time, funded projects to try out my ideas, using students as guinea pigs, which they were great. You know, they they really embraced that experimentation and then report making writing reports for the funders to say this has been the impact so that has been kind of my pattern i suppose to how i've arrived to where i am great thanks simon and then william so hi folks it's it's great to see the and hear the sort of meandering um non very non-linear path uh, that, that people have, have taken and it gives me gives me comfort that that mine is also that sort of ambling around to, to sort of find find where i find where i end up now um, my, I actually started out life as a mathematician, um, so I was a student at the University of Manchester, um, which is actually where I, I forged quite a bit of my career after graduating. Um, and, and it was probably as a student that I got interested in this education space. I was a, um, I was a, a facilitator for some study groups um, with a, I was introduced to a model of peer education called supplemental instruction. Um, which is is basically higher students encouraging discussion and collaboration um, for challenging areas of modules um, in, in in with their lower year peers, and then after that I I was destined to um, to to go and work for one of the big four um, accountancy um, management accountancy firms and but because of when my postgrad finished um, I couldn't quite start with the graduate recruitment cycle so I, so I fell into um, a nine-month internship um, in our teaching and learning office um, and that's about 20 years ago now. Um, I was all ready to go after the summer to, to, to go and join there and at the University of Manchester I worked in in a range of different roles in learning and teaching um, and at the time what was an emerging 
field of, of students as partners and it, it's now it's something that we that we talk about ever such a lot but at the at the time it was it was quite rare actually um in that what we can we can trust students to to, to work with us in a partnership in a consultancy type role um and actually view them not necessarily as as as, as learners but as educators alongside ourselves as, as staff and it it sort of opened up the power of partnership to me the the, the power of, of of talking together and with colleagues we we grew what was the student engagement portfolio at manchester um and not not necessarily student engagement that was done to students and neither really was it student engagement that was done with students but with students and staff it, it, it was it was that partnership element that really um, lit, lit a fire for me and a, I guess a recognition of what collectively we can achieve. And about um, about three years ago now, um, I I left Manchester um, for what I thought was going to be a six month sabbatical um, over to Cork in Ireland at what was then Cork Institute of Technology. Um, I left actually not from the teaching and learning quality assurance, quality enhancement side, but left from from the students' union, where I'd taken up a role as head of education and advocacy, and it was trying to bring together all the elements of sort of student engagement and partnership. So, from the individual representation of an advice service, through our education enhancement program, through to campaigning democracy, all those those different strands of of, of students being part of their education journey. Um, and I moved over to to Cork, um, which was six months, and I'm now there for just over two and a half years. Um, although interestingly I'm not physically there at the moment because of this uh, this small pandemic that we seem to be, be, be in and I, I work in a role that straddles two teams I, I straddle our teaching and learning unit but also our student engagement office and I, and I just want to finish um, by, by giving you a, um, a bit of an Irish word that I learnt um, when I when I first moved over our student engagement office is called Unsure A-N SEO and it's a stroke of genius by my director as to how they how, why it's called that so in Irish the word an is the so an the SEO student engagement office but unsure as a word in Irish also means here so when if you imagine when you're in a classroom and you're taking the register or the roll call you know um, Simon Thompson unsure you know, Nicola Whitten, unsure. Mm -hmm. took unsure. But unsure has more of a, a meaning, as a lot of words in Irish do. It doesn't mean just to be physically present, but it means to be emotionally, immense, uh, emotionally, mentally um, here. I'm in that space. Mm -hmm. And just as I was thinking about this trajectory, I was thinking, yeah, that's that's something that is is what gives me the the, the spark, which is how can we encourage students and staff to be unsure together. Um, so Brilliant. that was the journey. Because Rika already introduced us to Bildung and you know some uh, yeah. big, you know, it's lovely to hear these international words describing and, and uh, I guess social, cognitive and emotional presence of students in terms of the literature around COVID was very much. So it's mm. really interesting. So yeah, that's lovely. That Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, so let's let's open up the discussion and I know it's a bit unfair because you will have had loads of light bulb moments. You will also be teaching others to create light bulb moments. But if we could pick out just one from your um, your example, whether it's um, 
you know, with with students directly from your from that period or whether with staff as you're working with them, it's up to you really how you want to take it. But what light bulb moments when students are really getting it is, is what I want to explore with you now. So, um, yeah, it was really hard when I was thinking about this. I kept getting tied into my own light bulb moments rather than, than students. Um, but I think the one for me that I wanted to share is to do with creating the space for those light bulb moments. And um, I do have in the past done quite a lot of work with doctoral students and the biggest problem that I found with doctoral students is that they need have this need to get everything right first time so that when they write they think they've written and it's perfect and actually that getting into that cycle of critique and improvement and the idea that something's never finished is really really hard and um, because that's actually absolutely crucial to the and I think what makes doctoral level standard of um, kind of teaching and learning. So what I would tend to do with, um, and I've learned this a little bit from trial and error, is get students writing really, really quickly. So within the first meeting, write me a thousand words, and then I'll take it and rip it to bits. And I'll tell them that they will hate me at the end of six months. So we have this quite difficult six months of everything that they write, I take and I critique and I change, and, and they'll have the same piece going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. And um, I remember one particular student just coming and saying that I, I feel I'm getting nowhere. And we went back and said, well, this, is, this is how you started and this is where you are now. Do you read them both? Do you not think? And, and it was this moment of, oh, I suddenly see there is no end to this. And PhDs never end and academics never end, but it's all about getting better. So I, th I think for me that, that just being able to go through that really hard process really early on, because actually what you don't want is somebody getting to the end of the doctorate and, and not knowing there is no point to finish mm -hmm. so that was the one I wanted to share yeah that's great any any I mean this is where we can open it up to all of you as well yeah I just wanted to Nick, uh, piggyback on on Nick's comment here so um, yeah I think creating spaces is really important but also creating processes uh, or scaffolding that kind of journey or that kind of light bulb moment so coming out of the design field, I really work with design processes and design methods as a way of uh, materializing thinking or materializing uh, their light bulb moments so we have some, so we can kind of explore them together, experiment with them together, uh, working with this concept of design collaboratoriums coming out of participatory design in the Nordic context, and also trying to really integrate that, I think that light bulb moment with students when there's suddenly something they care about or are compassionate or concerned about and then trying to turn that into kind of a research journey um, through a kind of um, very structured but very open at the same time process so they end up having something that are very strong kind of academic argument and a sort of kind of design materialized thinking that they can show off as an example of how to make that's so whatever they they care about. So, for example, I'm the study coordinator of the masters in ICT-based educational design, and so there, there I'm working with like future teachers and having them to really dig into their values and the core virtues of pedagogy, and kind of almost rediscover the purpose of education within educational technology, and then go on a, a journey to kind of transform uh, the present to a more preferable world in the future. So working with speculative design and 
foresight studies and the futures cone um, and then trying to have them on a really strong foundation so they actually have like the tools and the arguments the academic argument uh, to to change change something to a more preferable uh, situation and i think they they find that quite invigorating because suddenly they can see that that what they are working with can actually be used for something without kind of the academic waste tradition where you have like a examinator reading the exam and then kind of maculating it, uh, shredding it to pieces and forgetting all about it. And then, you know, in the end, you can go and do something of use, kind of transforming that experience into, oh, like what we are thinking about right now and these kind of small uh, proposals or design concepts are actually quite useful. We, are, we actually know a lot that other people can learn from already while we are studying. Um, so, so working with this within a concept I, I called with Janus Holt's own um, participatory academic communities, perhaps also connecting really strongly to William and what others was talking about, students as partners, students as co-researchers, without kind of making them into a new kind of what's it called like precariat, like study, not, they're not my assistants, they're researchers and we're researching something together. Mm-hmm. That's fabulous, Riga. There's so mu much in there as well. And I love this idea that in a sense, in your treasure islands, you are getting people to be passionate, but also then look what else they can improve around in the archipelago of other islands or in the, in this, which is lovely. Thank you. Yes. I'll pick up. I, I, I'm sure William will have a lot to say around this, because what you're talking about Ricky, there is this kind of how do we develop that partnership really early on in the student kind of experience and I suppose what Nick referred to there is this idea that somebody comes to a PhD thinking they have to have it right first time because there's something quite not right about the undergraduate journey or the the postgraduate taught journey because that is about having to get it right first time and I suppose my light bulb moment was actually a, a switch off moment when I was in lecture theatres and there were hardly any students there by week six and I'm thinking what is going on here this is a this is not a light bulb moment this is a kind of challenge that I need to resolve and I, I suppose for me this was about and you talked about this Rika about this idea of conversation and the lecture is hardly ever a conversation even if you try and design a lecture to be a conversation it always it's almost as if we've kind of societally accepted that a lecture is a broadcast mechanism from somebody talking to lots of people and universities use it as an efficiency gain because you can get 100 students in one room with one academic member of staff and I suppose what I was thinking was how can I make a light bulb moment out of a lecture not working which is when I in 2006 started using kind of Apple technology to explore podcasting what I ended up doing was producing short podcasts of about 15 or 20 minutes that picked up the key themes of what my lecture was going to be, but then wrapped it around a conversation with a series of questions in the discussion areas of the VLE. And that was the light bulb moment that I saw for students because they were able to kind of listen to the concepts of what I was talking about. I would also add in, you know, some slides that they could access if they wished to. But what I was trying to encourage them to do was kind of build a conversation around my lecture, not take it as read, 
not take it as thank you you broadcast that to me i will now take this store it somewhere and use it again later and that for me was that light bulb moment and that was when i started to really think about how we use technology more effectively to engage with learners and to generate those conversations which are really hard because the whole school system in the uk is about students listening to teachers even today it's unfortunate and then regurgitating that into kind of exams you know we've almost gone backwards in the last five to ten years in my um you know my personal kind of thinking around how we assess school kids is is just not right and they don't have that chance to have conversations and think of their through their learning they're prepared for exams and i think we've got to unpick that when they come into higher education and if we don't get it right they end up getting to a point where they're doing a phd and they're not prepared for that criticism and they're not prepared for that conversation um, so my light bulb moment was stopping lecturing and thinking about how i present the conversation to students in a way that i think is more valuable to them and you were 15 year ahead of the time simon as well because obviously in the pandemic that was a very uh, first you know that was a really good pedagogy to go to and you can't imagine how frustrating that is you know seeing it really working and then but i suppose the challenge that we had then was the technology wasn't um ready enough for staff just to be able to jump into this i had to work really hard to make podcasts work and embed them into a vle in 2006 which sounds crazy doesn't it i had to work out where to host them i had to work out how to embed them i had to work out how to get students to stream them you know so there were lots of challenges Whereas now there's not so many technical barriers to it. Um, and this is an example, you know, we're producing this podcast, but the process of streaming and then accessing has been um, over the last few years really simplified. Yeah, I mean, that, that's yet generally, I mean, some of the educational principles like since Dewey and things like that have been around. And it's funny how sometimes technology really has to catch up with some of that. Mm -hmm. William, is there, I mean, I know you started talking about student engagement and partnership. Is there any anything you want to pick up on your light bulb moment? Yeah, it's, it's a number of things have sort of just the threads have started to come together really, really interestingly for me. And there was there was three there were three words that that I've sort of I've jotted down as folks have been talking that linked to my sort of light bulb moment. Um, and it's interesting that our moments are not necessarily a particular point in time. But it's an experience uh, as well, and the three words were challenge, conversation, and space. Um, and and for me, the the, the light bulb moment. Um, it's challenging um, people to be in different spaces to have different types of dialogue that they may not have experienced before. Um, and it was the idea that it's not necessarily students and staff that I'm considering here, but learners and educators, because I think, you know, we've heard already that 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 staff can be learners, students can be educators. But we did some work a few years ago at Manchester, and it's really driven throughout throughout the rest of my career, the notion of institutional dialogue or shared dialogue. And it's taking people into spaces where we forget the hierarchy. We we move away from the particular roles that I might perceive myself to be. And actually, I'm a human being who has something who wants to make a diff who wants to make a change in, in, in some some way. And so where those were almost where the power is challenged and when that power is challenged that suddenly my traditional role a student 
can give something to another traditional role, a staff member, that that staff member finds enlightening, that they find almost transformational. Suddenly when that happens, that changes the dynamic in the classroom because the students then see themselves as part of the learning process or the learners see themselves as part of the education process and educators see learners as part of that. And I, and I, I, I mentioned at the very beginning around student engagement, it's not something that's done with students, but it's done with students and staff. And that's the whole drive for me. And in, in, an, an example of that um, would be um, a project that we've been working on very recently in, in Cork, and we've been looking at assessment and feedback. Um, and we are looking at how do we build assessment literacy through students and staff working together. Um, and suddenly when staff are seeing the comments that students have got, the ideas that students have got, students are seeing that their voices are valued in a way that they may not have necessarily traditionally experienced. And Simon, it comes back to that idea of what's happening at school. Um, how, how when we're coming into that university setting, is that tertiary setting, are we able to disrupt a little bit what I might perceive to be my role as a learner? And, it, and when you, when you see the light bulb moment and it's a light bulb moment that you see spark, it suddenly turns on in students and in staff. And it changes, it changes the way that they interact. Um, and just to close off, there was a, um, an example from supplemental instruction in South Africa. Supplemental instruction was introduced at the, at when they were making the transition from, from, from apartheid. Um, and they acknowledged that supplemental instruction was a tool that helped the merging of different institutions come together. And the, the staff had had one complaint, and I say a complaint with a smile, um, that when students who'd engaged in these supplemental instruction sessions were coming into the lecture room, they said, I, I can't do my lecture because I'm being, they're, they're asking me too many questions. Um, but they were seeing that as a huge positive that suddenly my view as to my perception as to who I am coming into this learning environment has been shifted and suddenly I am I can be a partner in this and partnership doesn't mean that we're all coming in with the same experiences but we're coming in and, and that in that mixing pot is there and so that for me is the light bulb of just the space that the space and the conversation that challenges my own perception of myself in whatever role I may I may have. Can, can I just add a th kind of thought that I've, I've picked up from talking to them and again I, Ricky will probably know that I talk about this quite a lot but I'm, I, when, I, when I was listening to, the, to you guys talking the thing that, that really struck me is particularly around spaces and it's around the spaces where people feel conf both confident to be challenged but equally confident to fail and actually I think when but Simon I completely agree with what Simon was saying about schools and I think it is really problematic that we teach them to test, basically teach them to the exam. I think that's actually more problematic is that we don't teach them that failure can be positive. Mm -hmm. And actually, when it comes to your light bulb moment, Simon, it was about something that didn't work mm -hmm. and being able to turn that around. And what I see, particularly for students coming in, particularly at an institution where students have been high flyers, they're used to getting straight A's, and then suddenly they're in a bigger pool and actually what I think is really challenging is in terms of student mental health and in terms of well-being but actually what universities aren't quite getting right is this idea of safe failure I mean an example of one of the things that we're doing is we've, we've recently implemented a set of innovation grants and again these are very much built on the student as partnership 
um, with the idea that it's students and academics coming together to do something genuinely innovative. Um, the, our problem has been that the things that people are coming up with, they, they're all quite safe. We want things that will, you know, that will fail and will fail safely because you've got students on board and and that they're not actually they're not crucial failures. But actually, I think that's that to me is the, the biggest issue of how. And of course, the whole language around failure and positive failure that that senior management get very scared when you say I'm actually creating projects that are going to fail. But actually, it's not the ones that fail. It's what we learn from them and how we create projects that actually do things that are genuinely radical, genuinely different. And that seemed to just be picking up on sort of the theme that was underlying what everybody was talking about. I was I, I, I was reading a book recently from Elon University over in the States, and it's their Center for Engaged Learning. And they, they put out um, a book called The Power of Partnership. And there's been that I've used that phrase a couple of times. It's really stuck with me. And as you were talking there, Nick, it reminded me of one of the, the chapters that they were talking there. And it, they weren't talking about safe spaces, but they were talking about brave spaces. And, I, and and that idea of, of failure, but it's the it's when things come together in the margins, it's the grey spaces um, where we need to be brave to challenge ourselves, um, to challenge our view of ourselves, but also, and, and, but how do you create that, an element of comfort in that brave space? Um, and to me, um, Tunde, you were talking about sort of community and belonging and, and the, the, the spaces where we can encourage that community and belonging to happen. And that sometimes has to be outside of those traditional spaces in order for us to bring it into some of the more traditional spaces as well. Yeah, I've, I've been working quite a lot with like the philosophy of space and place and, and atmospheric design and stuff like that. And I think I think you're right. You're right, Nick. That there's this there's this important notion about failing forward and and micro failures that are kind of the driver of design processes, at, at least when they're done right and not in the waterfall model. And and so for but for students, we are actually asking a lot of students when they get to the highest form of education or staff teaching the highest form of education that that is like universities and stuff like that. And, and so we need, for example, the concept of brave spaces, we need to kind of have a vocabulary for that and a practice for that that, that are quite nuanced in a certain way, like have a repertoire and have a repository that can kind of, again, scaffold it or create a process or create a journey. For example, I've been working a bit with like the concept of Wunderkammer, um, a cabinet of curiosities. Like you, you start with a cabinet of curiosities and you go in and you look around and, and what was quite interesting with the origins of the Wunderkammer is that it's like science and art and made of stuff all jumbled together in these Wunderkammers uh, or cabinets of curiosities. And you go in and you marvel and you wonder. So kind of that would be like the light bulb moment, perhaps in a certain way, like, oh, this is interesting. What does this mean? Or, hmm, I could build my own animal here. And then kind of moving them from that kind of exploratorium to an experimentarium like failing with where you would fail you would try out different stuff it doesn't work it all falls apart try again so having like rather than a long linear process pointing towards the assessment in the end you have these failure loops uh, where you i often say to my students it's about failing as many times as possible uh, and as big as possible but without major repercussions so that in the end you will have a really strong argument for what you tried out, how it didn't work, 
and why your best bet here would be to do so and so based on all your failures because failure is knowledge you know so i think it's it's having that i think i don't know if we need a new language but but we need a strong language to actually my first month whenever i teach is about persuading the students that that it's okay it's, i don't i i don't know what we are making here i don't have the answer you're not trying to figure out what my answer is and then copy it uh, i'm you know we need to figure this out together and they don't really believe that you know they are like mm, this is a trick you're trying to trick me into something and i need to figure out how i'm gonna make it not fail at the assessment moment so this distinction between learning moments and assessment moments i use quite a lot of time to trying to pick that apart because now everything is an assessment moments to students and all the learning kind of disappears because they're so focused on is this gonna be on the exam or why should I learn about this strange things? I, I can't see how I'm using this for my future work life or something like that. This reminds me, Rika, of, of, of reflection or reflective assignments that challenge because you're trying to get students to reflect and learn from the, it's exactly that process that you're trying to capture. But, you know, that I, I know many staff have said, oh, uh, people still think that students or learners will still think, I'm not gonna get a good mark for it if I say what I have failed at or you know what didn't work. Whereas you're trying to get get the students to well, actually that's the bit if you learn and you're able to reflect on it, that's much more valuable than so yeah, I can I can see that. So that's your wonder karma and the and this from ex you know seeing exploring to experimenting. That was a nice also move on us into the next bit when I would like to ask you and again it's slightly unfair because you will have the repertoire of all these things but if you had one teaching prop or pedagogy you know it can be um, a wider thing to take to your treasure islands with students uh, with that precious contact time what what would it be uh, this was an easy one and um, for me it would be balloons um, because I love balloons. Um, I think also being very practical on a desert island, they would be particularly useful for carrying water and uh, bamboozling lions. But equally for the pedagogy side, um, I, I, I subscribe to um, a play zine. And this is, this is Greg's colleague, uh, Andy Walsh, who creates it. And it's basically um, a magazine that comes once a month or probably is now sitting in my office with a year's work. Um, and and it, it just brings together sort of ideas around play and particularly uh, one of them had a challenge which was here's a balloon go and use it in your teaching um, so I, I basically got it put a challenge inside it went into a lecture and um, put it up and and it was amazing how many people and, and the idea was that if you want at any point you could pass it on or you can pop it and do the challenge so actually and, and it worked really really well it unfortunately got popped really quickly but I've since used it in teaching with, with having balloons going around and it's silly and it's whimsical but it also gives people in the in the classroom the choice of whether they engage so you can use it for kind of student questions you can use it for feedback you can get students writing their own things and putting them into balloons and um, I also love the sort of tactile nature of it I think that actually I you know I'm a massive fan of digital and online but physical things play-doh lego balloons there's just something really nice about having that physicality um so yeah it was, it was a no-brainer i'd take some balloons with me oh that's fantastic i love it 
because as you said, it's playful, but you, you've got the surprise and the choice. And I guess it perhaps it goes back to your child, you know, the when you have balloons for your birthdays and then, yeah. yeah. Is, is that just for children? I just assumed that was still a thing. <laughs> No, 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 no. Well, I'm just talking about birthdays in, in when 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 people were little. But I just love I've love all the versatile things that you've all listed. That's amazing. I think it's very difficult not to be cheered by a balloon. Love it. Thank you. Rika? Yeah, I think I'm I'm probably the perfect follow up to Nick because uh, I've been at the her and Alex and other people's of course playful learning conference festival, whatever we call it. And I think they're so good at all this kind of material, playful, tangible stuff. And I'm, even though I'm even also a play scholar, I'm way more boring in a certain way. Um, and so I also have a way more boring answer than balloons. I really like that answer, except that's one of my two uh, phobias. It's like wet balloons is one of them. I, I, I can't, and holes, like you have this whole phobia thing where you can't stand holes. So holes and wet balloons are my two no-go. So I probably wouldn't go to mix balloon oh, but we, could, we could keep them dry for you we could okay. ensure no wetness yeah and i never learned to blow them up as well like uh, yeah so you will have to practice that we'll with get me, your without them getting fun. wet yeah <laughs> <laughs> so so i think also i think i would i would because it could also be a pedagogy right to, uh, as i understand it so yes, i went the yeah, boring it can, way it's yeah. A general, yeah yeah not the fun balloon way unfortunately so i would i would I'm really in love uh, with with the concept of signature pedagogy um, based on Schulman, and I probably kind of totally destroyed it and warped it to my own. But I think what's wonderful about that pedagogy is that it it builds from the values and virtues to the pedagogy, and then to the surface layer where we would find the balloons, obviously. Um, but like the 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 virtue of the balloon if we should if i can piggyback off, off nick's idea here so the virtues and the values that nick already talked about inherent in the balloon because the balloons could probably also be used for evil and and very non-fun very harmful pedagogies i would suspect so the 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 materials are in themselves not um a guy a, a proof of a good pedagogy, I would say. So we need Nick's values uh, there and we need like the deep pedagogy, the pedagogical structure around the balloon before we start to use the balloon. So I think I would, I would, Nick could convince me to come to her balloon island and then we could kind of build a signature pedagogy around the balloon. And the other thing I really like about signature pedagogy is the holistic thinking around the signature pedagogy with the hands, heads, hearts and habits. So for me, and I think that perhaps connects to what Simon was, Simon was saying about uh, the lecturing, um, much of high, well, much of education in general are really focused on the head part, like, and checking the head, um, checking for thinking. But, but the head, how we think, the hands, how we act and what we do, what we choose to do, and especially the hearts, how that makes us feel in education. Being an educator, being educated, that is really what it's about for me. And there, I think all, a lot of the words Nick used about the, around the balloon is really about that, how to bring back the joy, bring back the purpose and so forth. And then we need a little bit of my boring stuff, probably like the academic purpose, and, and then we can build a balloon island. <laughs> 
I, I've written down, note to self, balloons can be used for evil. So thank you for that. <laughs> that must be the, it's the association between balloons and clowns, isn't it? That must be the... Oh, well, I like clowns better than wet balloons. <laughs> but I guess clowns would be getting balloons wet with their squirty flowers. Yeah, yeah they're in the sewer, aren't they, in the movie It's... Uh, I've I seen sure, Rika, then if you'd if you'd kept Nick on side because at the moment you said that balloons could be used for evil, you, her her face changed just a little bit and she said, "What's this?" And but uh, you 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 brought us with you then with your signature pedagogy. I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was fun. Yeah, that's and then as you know, I I um yeah um, I think the idea of the hands. Uh, minds and hearts is definitely the three to all together go and and I think many a times when people talk about pedagogies as, as with the balloons as well it was all there all the hard stuff was there which is just what's so fascinating thank you what about uh, Simon yes yeah, so I started out by I'm, I'm going to go big here <laughs> I said the thing that I would want to bring is the internet <laughs> <laughs> which is quite a big it's not even something that you can actually bring but I just the, if you bear with me I'm going to come on to a pedagogy I'd bring in a minute but I think the concept of the internet around this kind of non-geographical um, network is one of the most powerful things that has emerged during my lifetime and yeah there's some really bad things about it but there's so much wonder about it and the reason I think that is because the other thing that I would bring, if I'm allowed to bring two things, would be active learning as a as a pedagogical approach. Because ultimately, if if you just had the internet, but you were a really well-equipped active learner, you could probably pretty much teach yourself anything within within reason. Now, and and I suppose for me that is really powerful, isn't it? But it also questions what is my role as an educator? I use William's term there. When all this knowledge exists elsewhere and a student that is a really well-equipped student could probably pass an undergraduate degree without needing an educator. I then question what is my role as an educator? So I, I would want to um, bring the internet because there's so much there. And if there's anything we need to do on the island, I'm sure that you went to a YouTube you'd find somebody that's already done it would teach you how to do it so i just think the concept of the internet and being able to learn anything you want and i watch my own children learning to do things you know like learning to build ramps to jump bikes off of learning to you know play tricks on their dad whatever it is they the first place they go to is the internet they don't come to me and say oh dad i want to play a trick on my brother or oh dad i want to build a ramp or dad i want to build a go-kart with some spare parts from the pram that's in the garage. What they do is they go to YouTube and they learn how to do it. And then they go, look what I've made. And I think that as being an active learner is really powerful. And then the other thing I wrote down is that a campfire, because there's something really nice, isn't there, about having a campfire? Because there's something that connects you back to kind of Neanderthal kind of living, which is the base requirements, which is the heat, the light, but also this notion that everybody sits around a campfire and tells stories. So if you've ever been, you know, in scouts and things like that, the the, the memories of sitting around a campfire, poking marshmallows in and having conversations with people is quite powerful. So I've been, you know, 
very greedy and brought three things, the internet, uh, active learning and a campfire. I think campfire is really dangerous for balloons, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, only if they're filled with helium. I think if they're filled with, um, with air, then they're not so bad. Or water, if they're filled with water, then it's very bad for the fire. Yeah, yeah. Well, we can and just be evil. the fire at one end of the island and the balloons at the other end. It'd be kind of fire balloon apartheid. Yeah, yeah, we could we could invent fire balloons like balloons with fire inside them. Nice. Equally, we probably don't need to bring fire to the island because that's probably there already. I we didn't want to make any assumptions, but mm. we might have to learn how to make a fire without matches, which we. But we've got YouTube, so we're fine. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I can learn how to blow balloons, right? And we <laughs> can learn how yeah. to keep them dry. Yeah, yeah. But if we if we put heat heat and balloons together, and we think about balloons <clears throat> in a bigger way than Nick's placing, then we've actually got ourselves a hot air balloon, um, yeah. and we can actually start to soar um, even more. Um, yeah. But uh, we we might need a bit of material for that rather than the uh, than the, the the plastic that's there. Well, as long as you bring a hot air balloon basket, and we're fine. Yeah, we could have an island in the air, like we will lift the entire island and take it with us everywhere, like the internet. Oh, I love it. I love it. We are just creating <laughs> new possibilities that we haven't thought about on this podcast before. I love in, it. In some countries, they do actually hoist up internet connectivity systems with balloons, don't they? They send them up into the air on balloons so that kind of in a remote area, they can have internet for a while. They basically send these big balloons up, like big weather balloons, with inter internet connectivity on them. So yeah, we've we've got it made. So William, now we have the island up in the air in a hot mm -hmm. air balloon and fire, uh, and yeah. we have internet with us. What are you going to add to this? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how much more there is that I could add, actually. I, I, but I'm I'm probably going to piggyback a little bit on on something that Simon said um, around the active learning piece um, and and bring it really practical, um, like Nick did actually there, um, and say I, I'd, I'd and and really simply I'd, I'd bring some post-it notes with me, um, and 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 I'm 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 I was really taken, Ricky, with what you were saying about. The, the the tools that we the tools that we use um can sometimes mask actually the something that's bigger and we could use them for different different things and we need to think go back to the values what is it that underpins why we're why we're doing things from from that head and heart perspective but for for me the post-it notes support something that is about growing what is inside of me you talked Rika, about your students realizing that you're not you don't want them to find the answer that's inside you. It's it's not that actually together we're going to con to construct this, but but to do that, we have to find what's in ourselves, and then find a way of bringing that out and sharing that so that the sum of the parts is 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 greater than the individuals. Um, and and I'm not saying that post-it notes do that completely at all. Um, but but I think they they allow us as a, as a as a method to say well. What, what's my voice? What is my voice of, of and, and what would I like to say? And even with a post-it note, I am able to say that anonymously. So that I might be apprehensive about what I want to say because I I'm, I know, I think Simon, you've done quite a bit of work with with, with Sally Brown and Phil Race and, and I'd, Phil was doing a, a workshop with us a few years ago um, and he challenged us and said, I want you to write something on a post-it 
but write it on the sticky side rather than the and, and that's stuck with me for 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 a long time now that that individual voice that that can be anonymous or it can be shared i can put it in the middle of the table um with jamboard and and you know other other post-it notes sticky note services are available i'm sure other than jamboard um but the, with those with those post-its you can then collectively bring that together you can start to identify where are the areas that we're coalescing around where are the gaps that, that, that we still don't know and i didn't know that was a gap there but i do now know that because i can see where the post-it notes don't don't fit um and the other thing to me does it speaks to a collective as well and a collaboration that the post-it note is not something that's fixed on a piece of paper but it can move around um and i can also take it away i can take my something else that someone else has said away and, and, and hold it with me um, and it's a for, for feedback purposes as well for reflection purposes it it helps to to do that so um and at the end of the day if we needed some fuel then for the fire once we'd worked through the post-it notes um they could go on there and it could um they could they could support us with some warmth as well well this this reminds me like post-it notes can, can also be really evil I would say as a designer working with design methods, I've been at so many really crappy post-it note workshops, you know, where you are just asked by some consultant designer type to put a lot of things on post-it notes, idea generate and innovate new concepts. And then in the end, they go into the bin and everyone leaves the meeting and everything kind of just vanishes. So I'm really, um, I really like to work with post-it notes. I do it all the time as well, uh, William, but how to actually again scaffold a process where we then take that idea generation or that materialization of thinking and build on in, in the next step and then in, in the next step as well so it becomes something endurable uh, sustainable in the end somehow i think that's really important i think it's just like people misunderstanding a lot of things uh, because the internet is really evil right um <laughs> can I, can I and then and then think oh design that's something about asking people to write stuff down on post-it notes. So again, we need, really need to think about the pedagogy also inherent in post-it notes. We said thing is really, really there. Um, the other thing it reminded me of, like the bright balloons, the bright post-it notes, the bright internet and the bright signature pedagogy is this concept that I worked with in the, in the participatory academic communities article, this concept of shadowy siblings. So I think that's what I, I'm talking about when I talk about the evil evilness uh, or darkness of post-it notes that there's there's a that we often talk about the bright side of pedagogy when it's something that we care about like all those uh, evil lectures and then we have the bright active learning or the bright post-it notes or something like that mm -hmm. and and we really tend to forget the shadowy siblings lying in wait within all those concepts so something like active learning which i'm also like a big fan of uh, I think all of us are, but I, I was, I think you were at that conference, actually, the SIHE conference, uh, Nick, where there was this, like, there was this um, uh, presentation on active learning, and then Søren, my colleague, has this really brilliant question about, like, a critique of active learning, that active learning might actually serve the neoliberal um, visible learning kind of trajectory that we can point to the active learning and say, oh, look what we made, and, like, show off the materialization of thinking which would really uh, hit me back as a designer right using design methods and when are we allowed to just sit in the corner speculating our heads without doing anything 
and and using it for anything, just thinking for like two years and then writing an article. This whole accelerated academia is really um, driving into student learning as well, I think. I love that concept because thank you so much. I, I love that criticality that you bring in with the shadowy siblings. It's a great, yeah, I, I love that. It's the connection between the what and the how, isn't it? So if you take the internet or if you take the balloons or if you take the post-it notes, they're all the what's, aren't they? And your perception of them or your experience of them is the how, which is, I suppose, part of the kind of work we do around pedagogies, isn't it? Is that you can be a learner, but you can be a learner in different ways and you can be a, an educator in different ways, depending on which pedagogies you might kind of move towards. So I was just trying to make a connection there between, yes, post-it notes can be evil and balloons can be evil, but ultimately they can be good as well. And it's the how part, which I suppose we all work on all the time, isn't it? The how do you do this stuff? How do you think about it? How do you talk about it? That the how part is the bit that really fascinates me, I suppose. You know, here's some post-it notes. How do you use them in the context of being an active learner? How do you use them in the context of um, signature pedagogies? How do you know? So it's kind of really interesting that you can have the same items or same activities, but approach them in very different ways, depending on kind of the framing of those. Nick, did you want to say something? Oh, I did, and I can't remember what it was now, but I was going to pick up on, on Ricky's shadowy siblings, because that sounds like the name for concept that I've been trying to, to just bring together. Do you have, you have you written about it? Are there references about it? Yeah, we actually mentioned, mentioned it in the Participatory Academic uh, Communities article I, I wrote with Janus Holst Own. Uh, in the end, because that was often we also write about our own, well, as, at least as educational developers, right? We write about our own educational practice or we develop new concepts or new pedagogies. And we often write about them in this bright language as well when we write about them. And so we actually took, which is a perfect example of the student as partners approach. So we took that article, we wrote about the students and their course back to the students as an open Google, open Google Doc and ask them to comment on it. And that was where the shadowy siblings emerged, like our idea of how wonderful it was for students to feel as researchers and on their own journeys. And they were like, we were so confused and frustrated. It was so chaotic. We didn't we didn't know what to do. And actually, I one of the students ended up with like a, a stress consultation with a doctor and stuff like that, that because it was so there was not enough scaffolding. So that was like one of the, the shadowy siblings lying in waiting these kind of open projects, uh, processes. They actually need some guidance. You can't just throw them out in the deep end in a design process if they have no experience with design processes at all. You need to give them some more guidance. So there, through talking with the students, those shadowy siblings quite a, kind of emerge uh, on, the, on, the, on the other side of the bright values. And it reminds me of someone said to me once that sometimes when you're learning or teaching that when you when you have questions and not really sure what something means and then you have to ask the question, well, what, how would you describe the opposite? What would the opposite of this be? And, you know, it, it just reminds me that this process of, of critiquing pedagogies from the other side can be quite useful because then you learn something about it as well. So, yeah, thank you so much for that.
Okay, so I mean, you have you, our balloon is up. Um, you know, we have you've talked about pedagogies. You talked about about uh, creating spaces, and also we talked about criticality, uh, the passion for education. So at some point, you need to create your own little spaces. I mean, Rika, you just talked about when you're in the corner of the room that is your time. So. I am just curious what what luxury items would you take to your own treasure islands which would help you relax off duty when you're not teaching is purely just for you to to get re I don't know revitalized and refreshed because I think we all need that especially in the current situation. So unfortunately because Ricky's relocated the island in the sky my uh, <laughs> my item might not work but, but it seemed to be crazy to be somewhere that was a treasure island and not take a full set of scuba gear. Um, and I would also need a buddy, obviously, for safety and company. Um, but the idea of being able to dive, to be away from everybody, to um, to really think, um, and as close as you can get to flying. So actually, it could be a scuba suit that would also work in the air, which would just lay to fly through the clouds as well. Lovely. I can imagine you in the deep sea with all the ocean, you know, ocean and the animals. That's a lovely image. Thank you. I think I will piggyback on Simon now and break all the rules because I brought more than one luxury item. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm I'm quite a, a a big fan of board games, especially a bit non-traditional board games. So, for example, board games that where you play together against the system, which is a nice metaphor for education uh, so i would i would bring like well pandemic might be a bit well too obvious now but a, a, a game like pandemic or something where we can play together as a group around the campfire perhaps um against the system um so having that kind of community and cohesiveness but then i'm i'm actually uh, which is probably not how I come off, but I'm actually quite an introvert uh, as well. So I'm totally on. I will leave uh, Nick with her scuba diving alone because otherwise I will interrupt her sphere, right? But but then I would I would bring some philosophy, I think. Um, and I'm not quite sure who. Perhaps Lustrup, who's a Danish philosopher, uh, wrote about the ethical demands. So in the moment we start to speak to each other or work with each other, we carry each other in our hands and, and you right now you are actually my responsibility and, and vice versa. I think that's a beautiful thought. And the reason why bringing something as boring as a book is because I don't have any time to read anymore and it really stresses me out. I'm supposed to be, everyone thinks that I'm reading all the time because I'm doing like philosophy and, and I'm in academia. But I only read like strategically to get some references into my articles and I would just like time to just read for myself, actually. And the last book would be a poetry book. Yeah, I think we can allow yeah, that because I think you gave such a good um, case for it. <laughs> I will I will pack it really tightly together so so it will not it would not take up more space than Nick's scuba gear, I promise. My scuba gear is going to be pretty big and heavy. Yes, exactly. So <laughs> I'd probably bring the island down. <laughs> no, you we can we can we can I'm sure in today's technology we can sort that out. Oh, I have access on the internet for all the books, right? I just I bring an ebook reader. 
I was just going to suggest the Kindle might be quite yeah. useful if, if we are allowed. I mean, we are allowed Wi-Fi because on Treasure Island, we have to have some contact with students. So it's it's not like a completely deserted island. No, and Simon brought the Internet. So, yeah, you know, it is there. Yeah, and poetry <laughs> and philosophy. And, so as long you know, as somebody I'm never coming charge home we're OK. <laughs> You might get stuck there, a bit like William, who gets six months assignments and then is there years after. <laughs> William, what about you? What would you take to your? Well, I'm I'm uh, I'm going to take both Simon and Rika's uh, rule breaking um, and that disruption space, which is something that I think as educational developers, as academic developers, it it it's if it's not part of the job description, <clears throat> um, it's it's actually part of the induction for that that we need to be we need to disrupt and we need to to shake things a little bit um, there. So I'd I'd bring I'd bring three things. Um, I would bring um, something to do with music. Um, for me, I play saxophone, um, and I am missing that terribly at the moment. Um, but there is something about playing together. Um, about making music together, um, which takes my head into a totally different space. Um, I can go to rehearsal after work and I might have had the day of, you know, I've, I've stepped into that, that that cabinet with people of looking at all those wonderful things that we can do. And But sometimes I just need to step away and, and have a head in a different space. Um, I, I would take um, some reading. Uh, for me, it would be be the Bible. My faith has a has a big impact on how I think about how people can contribute. That we all have value, but we've all got different things that we can bring. Actually, we're not all the same person. So how can we all step in to that together? And, and the just as you say, Richard, just some time to read actually is is great. Um, and then building on Simon's campfire, um, I'd I'd love to be cooking things um, on a campfire. So I'd, I'd bring some sort of there'd be some kitchen paraphernalia there um that would help us share and eat together um because i think sharing a meal um is again a different space we we're all around a table together um or a campfire together um and suddenly we're in that that different space where we can have conversation and dialogue um with with, with each other um so those are those are my three sorry tunda i've, I've broken the rules there. <laughs> Again, because they are so convincing. Who wouldn't love join meal and uh, music? So yes, I'm I'm allowed to let you have it. Thank you. I allow you to have it. Thank Simon, you. last but not least, what would be your luxury item to relax? What would I bring? I would just literally bring my bike. I I just you know, I suppose in lockdown particularly, my my bicycle has been. How do I get myself out of my house in a kind of legal way? Well, the first thing is you're allowed to bike, you're allowed to cycle around uh, on your own. But I also like the fact that in cycling, there is a sense of community and there's also a sense of belongingness because you can go cycling with other people. And I also think that uh, having a bike gives you the opportunity to go further than people that might just be walking. Because in a day, I could cover 60, 50 or 60 miles on this island, where somebody walking might only be able to cover you know, 20 or 25. So I would, I would bring my bicycle, and it's kind of a place where I can have my own headspace on my own if I wish, or I can join up with other people and we can um, uh, go out and cycle. So that would be it. My luxury item would be my bike. Are you bringing bags for everyone then, Simon? Yeah. 
Well, if if it's permitted, yeah, I don't know what the rules are around whether you can bring other pe other people your preferred luxury item. Well, this is where we might go in the last bit of the bit about bartering. But I think we have been bartering all along the way and, um, you know, critiquing as well, you know, looking at really the item that you had and looking at it and having some comments. So I think, yeah, bartering is definitely allowed. And I guess, Rika, from Denmark especially, a bike is essential there, isn't it? So. Yeah, except I actually don't have one which is uh, yeah well which creates a lot of communication and discourse around me not using a bike so yes certainly you've only got 500 meters to your work so yeah know. and i i actually i actually prefer walking to riding a bike because i like um, the way when you when you're walking uh, the grounds hit you like in your steps so you kind of walk the world into the body i think it's similar to perhaps to biking it's another way of getting the world into the body did a lot of horseback riding when i was a kid and that's a, a totally different uh, way of getting the world into a horse body and then into your body and then kind of feeling at feeling at one with that so i think we should have lots and we have scuba diving as well i did a lot of scuba diving at one of my holidays that was quite scary but also quite beautiful Wow, I love this conversation today because we have covered all the elements, earth, fire, water, air. I, I think that's what we, we will do today. We will close this and thank you so much. I've really, really enjoyed it. Perfect discussion. Great Treasure Islands. So thank you. All.